0: The Arthropod.
1: The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla And five, four,
0: three, two. Welcome back, everybody, to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am but one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky.
2: I am another one of your hosts, Jody Green from the Nebraska. Oops. I'm another (laughs) one of your hosts. I'm Jody Green from the University of (laughs) Nebraska-Lincoln.
1: Shoot. I'm the last host today. I'm Michael Scavarla with, uh, shoot, no, I was going to say Purdue. No, I'm at Penn State University. (laughs) We are all befuddled today. (laughs) I nailed it. I just want to say that. But we also are joined today by
0: a very special guest. Very special guest. Would you mind introducing yourself to the Arthropod listening audience?
3: I'm Crystal Hans, and I'm from Purdue University.
0: Thank you for joining us here today we are very excited to have you uh, on zoom as part of our studio here today as part of our our October offerings our spooky uh, servings here this semester. We've done brown recluse is going to be it was the last one, and then we're going to follow up today with forensic entomology and and Dr Hans so we're very excited about this. can we kind of start at the beginning and maybe hear your origin story with entomology? How did you get involved in our in the science?
3: Yeah, so I got started with entomology pretty early. Um, I was the type of kid that liked to be outside all the time. And unfortunately, I am allergic to animals with fur and feathers. So I grew up collecting basically anything that I could find outside. And my mom has been very supportive of all of my hobbies and let me collect insects to keep as pets. So I started collecting and walking out in the woods. And as a kid, one of my nicknames was Creepy Crystal because I liked horror movies and maggots and other things that people can find creepy. So I think that's what really got me interested in insects. But it wasn't until my undergraduate degree, I was a biology major, and I was on a pre-med track. So I thought, I need to go to medical school. That's what you do with a biology degree. And I went to a forensic science symposium and heard from a pathologist about maggots at autopsy. And I thought to myself, wow, there's a way I can apply my love for insects and maggots in particular in an interesting way. So I ended up taking off a year after I graduated with my bachelor's degree to find a program that really um, fit my needs and would give me an opportunity to do research in forensic entomology.
0: And where was that at, if, if you don't mind me asking?
3: Yep. So my undergrad was at William Smith College, which is a small um, private liberal arts school in New York. So I grew up outside of Syracuse, New York. And my master's was at Cleveland State University in oh. Cleveland, Ohio. Go Vikings. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's uh, shocking when somebody actually knows Cleveland State. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're a good basketball team sometimes.
3: They are right? sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: that's very cool. Uh, I like hearing stories like that about like this. The, the past of your childhood, like finding the path through uh, through something interesting and weird. I hope that you wore Creepy Crystal like as a badge of honor, that it wasn't oh, a torture I'm very thing. proud. Good. Very proud of that. It's a brand. That, <laughs> it <came>. yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So that's how you got involved in, in entomology and forensic entomology, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, I, I'm always kind of curious. How many active forensic entomologists are there in the U.S. right now?
3: Yeah, so there's probably between fifteen and twenty of us that work on cases, um, mostly death investigation cases that we get called to consult on. So, yeah, we have a few people that are nearing retirement, so our community is kind of shrinking, and we're always looking to recruit more people into this field. So,
0: very cool. Uh, wh- who would be some stalwarts of that of that group? That's fifteen to twenty.
3: So. Um, I think some of the, the big names that people might recognize if they're thinking about forensic entomology, uh, Jeff Tomberlin at Texas A&M would be uh, someone that gets asked to consult pretty frequently. Jason Bird at University of Florida. He um, works on so many different types of cases and uh, veterinary, wildlife. I mean, you name it. Uh, Adrian Brundage, also at Texas A&M. So Texas has a really big stronghold uh, in forensic entomology. Um, I work on case in Indiana. Illinois, Ohio, Missouri, Wisconsin, basically all the states around me. My colleague, Lauren Widener, is at Arizona. So she kind of handles the the desert southwest. My um, PhD supervisor, Shara Vanlerhoven, she's at the University of Windsor in Ontario. And so she works on cases there. And there's um, two other forensic entomologists in Canada and then kind of a a few other people, different areas in the U.S.
2: That's That's pretty cool. So is it wherever you're located, that's like your region?
3: Basically, sometimes we'll get requests from, you know, other sides of the country. And I try to steer that more towards somebody that's familiar with that region and works with insects in that area, if somebody's available. Uh, yeah, it's generally wherever we're located is where we end up consulting.
0: It sounds like a very select group, uh, 15 to 20 across the country. I mean, that's more exclusive than the presidency.
3: Yeah, we're we're a small group, but we cover a lot of ground, and it's a, a really great community. Very supportive for students and for research.
2: So, can you teach our listeners what exactly you do at Purdue?
3: Yeah. So, at Purdue, I am an assistant professor of forensic entomology and the director of our forensic science program, and so I teach courses in forensic science. I teach three main courses that are forensic investigation, forensic analysis, and forensic testimony. So what does it look like to collect evidence, to analyze it, and then to testify about it in court? And then I also teach courses that are specific to forensic entomology. And as I said, I I love to talk about maggots. So any opportunity that I get to share that uh, with students is always really rewarding. And so my position has a, a big teaching appointment, but I also do research. So, I have graduate students and undergraduate students in my lab, and we work on all sorts of different research projects that look at decomposition and insect activity when it's affected by different environmental factors or um, human factors. So, people try all sorts of things to hide decomposing remains or eliminate evidence. So, we explore some of those areas. And then I also um, try to do as much outreach. And service uh, as I can, again, to spread the word about maggots. And so I'm on um, in quite a few professional organizations, especially NAFIA, the North American Forensic Entomology Association. So I'm the president elect of that organization. So I've been involved with them since 2010, and that makes me feel very old, but um, for a long time. And it's an organization that really does great work to help students. So my job um, at Purdue is teaching and research and then service uh, for students and for organizations.
0: Coming at this from a Purdue alum perspective, I got to ask, do you have a booth at Bug Bowl?
3: Oh, we have a whole tent at Bug Bowl.
0: Yeah, Um, okay.
3: Yeah, so the Forensic Science Club, so I'm the advisor of that student club, and we do a lot of maggot art and all sorts of fun hands-on activities, fingerprinting and blood spatter. We do a lot of forensic activities during Bug Bowl. So, yeah, we usually get a pretty good turnout. (laughs) Tell
0: me more about maggot art.
3: Yeah. So this is a a fun activity, I think, for people of all ages. But it seems to work really well for younger kids to familiarize them with insects and insect behavior and maggots, which sometimes people have a very negative association with maggots. So um, actually, I have a, a sheet of it over here. Let me just grab an example for you. So there's a couple ways you can do this. You can either take a piece of paper or canvas and and put uh, paint down and then set your maggots in it and let them wander around. We usually pick larger maggots that are active and trying to move. Or you can dip the maggot in paint and then let them wiggle around and they make a nice abstract design. And so they will paint for you. And so this is one that took a lot of maggots to make it, <laughs> but you can make all sorts of different. Um, different drawings with it. So like I said, it's a fun way to show kids that maggots aren't scary and that they're useful and to talk about the life cycle and then to have them take something home that they can remember insects uh, hang on their fridge. So, Yeah,
0: integrate entomology and art. I love
3: it. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) And what species of maggot? Uh, For these ones, uh, in the lab, we usually rear three to four different species. So it just depends on what we have an abundance of. So sometimes it's Clifra vicina, sometimes Formia vagina, Lucilia sericata. Um,
2: just depends on what we have. So, Is it, are they all uh, equally as great as at their art?
3: They're all pretty good, I would say. Um, depending on the temperature outside, that's going to dictate how yeah. well they move. So we had a really cold uh, bug bowl day this past year, and we actually had to get some heaters to make sure that the maggots were warm enough to be able to move around. Some of them just wanted to sit there and weren't really fun to draw with. So
0: <laughs> the ectothermic artists, that's, that's a problem. Absolutely. <laughs> now you're, you're a professor at Purdue uh, building your program up. You've been there for a few years, right?
3: Yeah. So I, I came to Purdue in 2019 um, as a lecturer. So it was a, a staff position and it was a 100% teaching appointment. So I was teaching classes. I, still did research on the side and started to consult with law enforcement in Indiana, basically as soon as I moved here. And then I became the director of forensic science and moved into the assistant professor role, August of 2021. So I've been here for over three years now, just in two different roles.
0: Congratulations. That's cool. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, In terms of, so you've, you've mentioned this now about working with the police. Is that in an official capacity as a Purdue employee or are you part of like the world of consultants as well? We heard from some entomological consultants earlier this year. Uh, Would you be a part of that, that world as well?
3: Yeah. So um, forensic entomologists have a really interesting, we kind of straddle both of those. So when I go out to consult and I'm at a crime scene or at an autopsy, it's, on my own accord and I own a consulting business so I can kind of run everything through that when I'm analyzing evidence so it's often that I have evidence shipped to me here at Purdue or delivered to me uh, here when I'm analyzing evidence in the lab that's under Purdue when I go to testify in court that's all me because um we don't want me to say anything on the record that could make Purdue look bad so that's all uh just on me solely. So, so yeah, it's a mix of both. Purdue
0: Pete and the Purdue lawyers are not going to be able to come (laughs) and save you is what you're saying.
3: I don't, I don't think so. And that's also, it's not their responsibility. So.
0: Well, that's interesting. That is a very interesting sort of piece of nuance to your job.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So do you have to take time off of work to go do that?
3: So um, we have a, a certain percentage of time that we can use for what's called reportable outside activities. So I can't spend all of my time consulting and um, I have plenty of other responsibilities that keep me busy. And I I can't really cancel a class when I get a call and say, oh, I have to leave and go to a scene. And um, sometimes I get called after the scene has already been closed or they call and tell me when the autopsy is scheduled. And I can kind of make some modifications to my schedule around that. And so it's pretty frequent that I'll go and it just happens to work for my schedule. But sometimes I have to tell them, I, I just can't make it. I have other obligations. And I'll usually be on the phone with the investigator as they're collecting the evidence for me, and then they'll ship it or hand deliver it to me. So yeah, I don't have to cancel anything to be able to accommodate and kind of fit it into my schedule.
2: Okay, so I just think this is like a dream job. <laughs> Sounds so fantastic and fun oh. and exciting. <laughs> It is. (laughs) Do you think that when you do outreach, though, everybody wants to have a job like yours or wants to be a forensic entomologist from what they see on TV or through media?
3: Yeah, I think um, forensic science as a whole is portrayed very differently on TV. It gets glamorized and there's definitely a lot of elements that are fictional. And so this is something that I I have frequent conversations in my forensic science classes with my students about what crime dramas are you watching, what TV shows, because sometimes that's what led the students to the program and to have an interest in this field or this course, because they saw someone on TV and said, I want to do that job. So we start to have those conversations about what is shown in the media and what is it like in the real world. And I always try to tie back everything into real world experience because On TV, sometimes they show, you know, a forensic entomologist has this magical power where they can pick up a maggot and know exactly what species it is and what life stage. Now, I can look at a maggot and based on the size, probably estimate what the life stage is. But until I look at it under the scope, I can't really make that determination, especially if it's a maggot. I certainly, there's very few species that are distinctive enough for me to know exactly what the identification is. So on TV, I think forensic entomology. It seems very easy. You just pick up a maggot, you know what it is, your part's done. But there's actually a lot more that's involved in terms of the analysis and all of the lab work that you're doing to try to confirm them.
2: And it probably takes more than 45 minutes to solve the case.
3: If only it took 45 minutes, I could get through this backlog of cases that I have. So, (laughs) yeah.
0: Is this part of what people call the CSI effect, the sort of like negative image that, or not negative image, but sort of a negative phenomenon that that has impacted criminalistics and forensics, right?
3: Yeah. So I think the CSI effect, you can interpret it in a few different ways. So basically the CSI effect is since 2000, 2001, when that first, the original CSI show came on air, what it did is it drew in a lot of viewers, very compelling show, really dramatic. They show everybody. Basically, showing up to crime scenes in heels and suits and being able to collect evidence and uh, interrogate suspects and interview people. And so it got people excited about forensics. And so the uh, CSI effect, one of the potential negatives is the people that watch these shows have a certain perception of what they think forensic scientists are and what kind of evidence they expect to see in every case. These people then get selected to be jurors. And when they go to a trial, They're expecting that everything is buttoned up nicely. There's a clear story that there's DNA fingerprints with every case, which is not always uh, present. And they're expecting um, particular outcomes with forensic science. So that's one one of the negatives. But it's also, I think, as an educator, there's a positive influence of some of these shows. And that's getting the word out there and recruiting students to these programs, showing them that there's all of these different career opportunities that they might not have considered. And so I think if I had um, paid attention to CSI when I was younger, and that was four years before I, I talked to that pathologist, maybe I would have realized, oh, people work with maggots in a forensic capacity. And that could have shaped me as well. So I think that there's there are a couple of different ways that we can look at the influence of CSI and all of those crime dramas, both positive and negative.
0: Got to take the good with the bad. I like that. Yeah, point.
3: definitely. <laughs> I, I
0: I actually I would have a confession. I I wanted to be a forensic entomologist. I wanted to be Gil Grissom. That was like the you reason I did. I got, <laughs> I, I,
3: want,
0: I went to Purdue uh, for a day in the department. I met Jody then when she was a grad student. Uh, she was one of the reasons I was like, I love this place. It's weird and and wacky. I, I'm gonna go to school here, but I I absolutely walked walked in those doors and I was like, I'm gonna come here. I'm gonna be a forensic entomologist. And then my undergraduate advisor, uh, he was like, There's like ten of those. You you don't <laughs> you don't want to put your money on that being a job available to you when you oh. get done. So uh, that that was uh, I got steered away from it. But yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that. Even though they are a bit overdrawn or overdramatic and <laughs> overwrought, yeah. they do help expose people to to new yeah. career paths. It's kind of a cool thing. So,
1: yeah,
0: uh, I, I was intrigued to hear your perspective on that. We've kind of talked about like you and and maybe the forensic world. Now we set the stage. Like, let's talk about what you as a forensic entomologist. What do you actually do when you get called by an investigator? Like, what are the roles that you're going to fill?
3: Yeah, so um, I'll get called. Yeah, if it will start from the very beginning. If I get a call from an investigator and there's a, a death investigation, they'll give me some of the, the background information, when the remains were located, where it's located. And if I'm able to, I can attend the scene to collect evidence myself. I prefer to collect it myself because I know what I'm looking for and it's just it's easier for me to observe these insects. And I'm able to collect large enough samples and really make sure that I'm covering all of my bases. So when I arrive, um, I put on full PPE to protect me from the scene and the scene from me so that I'm not contaminating anything. I shed hair like crazy, so I don't want to leave any of that. Um, I don't, I just don't want to contaminate anything. And then I'll start to uh, assess, and I there is a, a certain protocol to follow, so different people that need to have access to things. I can't just show up and Say step aside, the forensic entomologist is here, and just have access. So I have to wait my turn. And <laughs> do you so, have a theme song
0: um, that would play if you. Were I wish,
3: if only. Yeah, <laughs> how how uh, disappointed people must be when I show up and the CSI theme doesn't come on. So <laughs> so um, then I'll start to uh, use a sweep net and collect if there's any adults that are flying. I'll take a sample of those, and then I'll start to collect any of the maggots. So I collect a sample from each area on the remains where there's identifiable insect activity. Sometimes there's just too many maggots and I have to use a spoon basically to spoon up samples of maggots. I always recommend dairy queen spoons. They're really excellent. They have a long handle and they're they're pretty hardy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I,
0: today's show is actually brought to you by Dairy Queen. Perfect, so, uh, perfect. that's our response. <laughs> 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 they will be very excited about this It's yeah. Cross pollination.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I'll sometimes have to take a spoonful of maggots if there's just too many to collect with forceps, and then I'll start to look for um, eggs or pupae, depending on where we're at. And so then, when the remains are removed. I can then explore underneath the remains, especially if it's outside, and I can really make sure that I'm not missing any of those maggots that might have crawled off, wandered away to pupate. I'm going to make sure that I'm capturing those as well. If it's an indoor scene, there's uh, some other complications to consider, um, and so that will dictate kind of how I collect. So um, once I collect, I can bring everything back to the lab, and when we collect, we do what's called companion sampling. So we'll collect some of the samples to keep alive, and then we'll collect from the same areas and we'll, we'll kill them and preserve them. So we're stopping their development when we're at the scene or at the autopsy. And so when I bring them back to the lab, I can rear up those eggs or maggots or pupae until they're adults, because it's much easier to identify the adult flies compared to the maggots. So we have both samples that we can work with in our analysis. And then there's many, many hours that are spent at the microscope, analyzing and identifying all of the insects. And so sometimes uh, investigators that collect will get really excited and really enthusiastic, which I love, but then I'll get thousands of maggots that they send me because they've collected so many samples. They're trying to get every insect that was on the remains. So sometimes those cases take a long time to be able to process everything. And then um, we do the calculations. We get the weather data um, closest to the scene as we can. And we're able to do all of those calculations using the development times of the species that we've identified and be able to put together a timeline. So if I'm collecting pupae from the scene, and that's my oldest insect that's developed on the remains, I can work backwards in time based on the development and the growth rate of those pupae to figure out when they were first deposited as eggs. And that's the timeline that I'm going to provide to the investigators in terms of the time of colonization. So when did the insects arrive and lay their eggs on the body? I I know that's a lot of information to throw at you, but.
1: (laughs) So I guess I have a couple questions after all of that. Yeah. You mentioned maggots a lot. Are they Mm -hmm. the only insects that you're collecting off bodies? Like do you do things like necrophorous beetles or other carrion beetles or whatever, like are they important or are they just like they get there but they don't really tell you anything? Um yeah. is, so is it just flies or, or what's going on?
3: No, so I think I think all insects are important and we have a diversity in forensically relevant insects. So we typically consider the blowflies to be our primary colonizers, they have an excellent sense of smell. They show up relatively quickly, and then once they access the remains, they can start depositing their eggs. And so their maggots are really important because they're developing on the remains. So a lot of the focus is going to be on low flies and sometimes on flesh flies. The beetles that show up, uh, we see some of them that show up early in decomposition, and it's because they're predators and they want to feed on the maggots <laughs> and feed on the eggs or feed on the pupae. So we have these interesting interactions between the insects that arrive to decompose remains. Some of the beetles will lay their eggs and their offspring will develop on the remains. And we see this especially with more advanced decomposition and beetles like our skin beetles that will prefer mummified tissue and their larvae will make a mess when they feed basically leave lots of remnants of themselves behind uh, as they're developing. So beetles can definitely be important. I would say that a lot of the death investigations that I get asked to consult in, there's maggots, there's blowflies that are present. And so they will be the predominant insect that I'm using for my calculations. But there are definitely plenty of examples of cases where beetles have been the only insects that are remaining or fragments of beetles that are remaining. So I think it just depends on the stage of decomposition um, and where the remains are located. And the the time frame that we're trying to estimate.
1: So things like the skin beetles can they can they tell you anything besides like this body has been here long enough to dry out and mummify?
3: The dermestids, yeah, their development can be useful with mummified remains. Um, And there's there's some other some of our checkered beetles and some other carrion beetles that if the larvae are collected. Then they can be useful for generating that developmental timeline.
1: How accurate of a timeline can you get? Like they show in in CSI, and the shows like, oh, they were killed at two twenty in the morning, based on like. So how are you are you estimating like within a few hours or within a few days? Like what's how how yeah, good can so, you
3: get? Yeah, so definitely not to the minute. Um, that would be amazing if I saw that. So. It depends on how far along in decomposition. So, the longer someone is decomposing, the more advanced stages of decomposition. If you don't have those low flies, you don't have the pupae, maybe everything's wandered off, and now the pupae have, uh, the flies have emerged out of their puparia and they're no longer there. That's going to make it a little bit more difficult to uh, have a, a shorter range that you're estimating. So, usually in cases where it's advanced decomposition and the remains have been out there for months or years. You're able to provide a a wider range based on those insects, but um, for something where there's eggs that are present, then you can provide a shorter range. So it could be a range within a few hours. And we always have a, a range. I don't think anyone in our community will be comfortable giving a specific point in time as their estimate. So Uh, As scientists, we know that there is variation and there's lots of factors that can affect our calculation. So we account for that and have a range that we provide. So yeah, I'd say earlier in decomposition, you can get shorter ranges. And then as the remains are more decomposed and more time has passed, then that range can, can extend. And so for cases with really advanced decomposition or even skeletonization, you could have a range that's within a season or a few months, whereas if it's maggots, pupae, uh you could have within a few days
2: or hours depending so so do you have like how soon after death do the blow flies colonize
3: yeah so that um depends on quite a few factors but overall the 80 flies degrees the, what's that <laughs> I said 80 degrees I don't know I just yeah, to <laughs> yeah so if if it's um So if I'm taking pigs out for research, so we use pigs as a model for human decomposition. And so a lot of times, especially if it's a nice day, the flies are waiting for us to put those pigs down. So it's almost like they're following us, waiting for us to drop those pigs and they'll show up right away. Now there's other factors. So if people uh, conceal the remains in an item or cover them with chemicals or Um, wrap them in something, this could be uh, a factor that could cause a delay in the insect's ability to access the remains. But yeah, a nice, nice day, good weather. The flies will be there within minutes sometimes.
2: Then can you describe the behavior of the maggots? Because you talked about, you know, them leaving the body because, you know, I went out and, hung out with a forensic entomologist friend when she was in grad school. I understand what that means, but a lot of people wouldn't know what happens after the maggots are done doing their thing.
3: Yeah. So um, the basic life cycle for our blow flies. So the female fly is always on the lookout for remains or a carcass somewhere where she can deposit her eggs. And so she'll arrive And they typically prefer to place their eggs in the natural openings of the face. So eyes, ears, nose, the genitals if they're exposed, or sometimes around a wound if it's available. And so they like these areas because they're able to provide moisture so that the eggs don't dry out. And especially the natural openings of the face provide a nice protective shelter for those eggs because they're really fragile. When the maggots hatch out of the eggs, they're really tiny. Their first instar, they're our smallest maggot, and they'll start to feed on the mucous membranes and some of the liquid. And maggots don't sleep, don't rest. All they do is feed continuously. So they will feed and grow, and they go through three maggot stages. So the first instar, then they get a little bit bigger, second instar, and then the largest maggot, which is the third instar. And once they're done feeding, the maggots will wander off of the remains or under the remains or sometimes into the clothing of the decedent if it's dry enough. And they're looking for a dry and safe place to form their puparia. So just the outer shell, almost like the cocoon for a fly. And while they're in that puparia, they're going to be transforming into an adult fly. And then when they're ready to emerge, they've completed their development, They um, will blow up a balloon from between their eyes and use that to pop the lid on that case. And then they crawl out. And when they crawl out of their puparia, they look very odd. Um, They haven't inflated their wings. They don't have their, I think they have a beautiful color when they're Mm -hmm. fully developed. So they look kind of gray and silver. And I've had investigators before tell me that, oh, the remains are covered in spiders. And I think that's kind of unusual. Why are spiders interested? And then I get there and it's actually flies that have just emerged from their puparia. So they look kind of spider-like. They just don't have enough legs. And so then after they've um, taken enough air and inflated their wings and fully hardened, now they have those beautiful metallic greens and blues that we, we usually like about our forensic flies. And now they can disperse away and find a food source and a mate and then repeat the life cycle. I, um, I do have to say I have a pair of earrings that my mom made that are maggots because it's really hard to find maggot jewelry. And my mom got into uh, clay earring making and I was like, mom, can you make me some maggots? And so she looked at a photo and was able to make some awesome maggot earrings for me. So.
0: They are quite good. Uh, very lifelike. Maybe a little big. But.
3: They, yep, <laughs> a little big. They have the they have the spiracles and they have the mouth hook, so they're pretty detailed.
2: <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I know. Okay, do they all migrate together, like in the same direction? So sometimes
3: they can. I uh, okay, let's split up. I'm happy to send you a a video of this after, if that's something that you want to link. I. One of the trainings that I do in the summer, I am an instructor in Ohio for a a police officer training academy, and we have big pigs that are out there uh, for us to collect from. And we had a huge migration of maggots, and it was 22 feet long, and they were all basically migrating in a similar direction, just kind of a a river of maggots, and then they ended at a, a pond of maggots, I guess. Um, all looking for a, a dry place to pupate. So yeah, sometimes we see these big migrations where they're all, I think it, it goes with herd theory. It's less likely that I'm going to be picked out by a predator if I'm in this huge group with all of these other maggots. So they all kind of migrate in the same direction. There are some stragglers that will often in different directions, but I have seen some big migrations all in the same, same way.
2: And then will the adult flies go back and lay eggs again in that same carcass?
3: Uh, Pretty rarely because a lot of the times the maggots will consume all of the tissue and there's just not enough to support another generation. So if you have enough resource and enough flies that have laid their eggs, you can get tens of thousands of maggots that are on the same set of remains. And so they will consume everything, all of the musculature, the organs, and so what's left is basically ideal for some of those dermestid beetles. So some of the cartilage and maybe some mummified tissue. So it's generally not enough resource to
2: support multiple generations. Hey, and I know we're talking a lot about bodies in maggots and I'm loving it all. Yeah. But are all your cases, are all your cases about murders? Are they always going to be when you get called there's, there's a dead body? So um, I would say
3: for most of us in the field, that's generally when we get called in. So it's not it's not always homicides. So sometimes it's a, a suicide or sometimes it's a natural death. And so um, somebody goes to do a wellness check and they find decomposing remains in the house. But there's also, so we t- typically break up our field into four subfields. And so we can be called in for... Um, urban cases. So this is where urban entomologists can get involved, especially if there's um, civil litigations, landlord-tenant disputes with things like bed bug infestations and cockroach infestations, where the landlords don't want to take responsibility and are trying to blame the tenant for bringing these insects into their complex. Um, I know that there's quite a few examples of stored product forensic entomology, where insects that are in some kind of a, a food item So at a restaurant, for one sec, phone calls. (laughs) Um, So we can be called in to assess that. And uh, we actually had a a case in Ohio where there were obvious fly eggs uh, that were in a a cheeseburger from a fast food restaurant. So that's an example where there's a lawsuit and people people want their money because they've been served insects. Um, There's also veterinary forensic entomology So insect infestations on domestic pets or livestock, and then uh, the medical legal aspect, so the death investigations. But there's also examples of neglect of children or the elderly, where a forensic entomologist can provide information about the extent of that neglect or abuse. Uh, And um, even if it's just a simple myiasis where somebody has been infested because they have a necrotic wound and they're diabetic and they're in a facility and they're not properly treating that. So that's something that a forensic entomologist can be called in on as well. So there's lots of different ways. I mean, forensic entomology is really just the application of insects in any kind of investigation. So there's lots of avenues for people that are interested in this field.
0: So kind of on this note, uh, and this could be perhaps cautious ground to tread upon, you can tell us if legally you're not allowed to answer this question, but can you share with us maybe like uh, your top two cases that you've had in your career as as a forensic entomologist?
3: Yeah, so um, there are some, some complications because sometimes um, some of the cases haven't gone to trial or are still open, so I can't really talk about a lot of the details, but um, one that I think was really uh, powerful for me was a case that I actually testified in last fall. And so this was a case, and I think this is another um, issue that on TV, they don't really show the timeframe from when you collect to analyze to when you finally are able to testify. So this was a case that I had analyzed all of the evidence for in 2019. And then it took two and a half years before it went to trial. So I had um, received evidence for this case and I identified all of the maggots. I provided the timeline. I submitted my report and then basically heard nothing for a while. And in this case, there was a, a woman who was close to my age who was killed and she had met somebody on a dating app and gone on a date and she never came home. And so I was able to. Uh, identify and analyze the insect evidence for that case, which insects are never or rarely the sole piece of evidence that's going to to really break a case open. The insect evidence is able to provide uh, corroborating evidence, so helping to support the timeline. And so that's exactly what happened in this case. There was a lot of other physical evidence that was involved, and I was one of many experts that testified in that case. But I was able to uh, tell the jury about my involvement and my analysis and why maggots are important and how I generated that timeline, and that piece of testimony was able to be used uh, to help convict uh, the person that was on trial, and so he received eighty years uh, in his sentencing for committing that that murder, and so for me, it's really important that I'm able to provide information, not just for the investigators, but for the families of these decedents. So any kind of closure that I can offer, um, I'm always willing to provide that. So I think that case uh, in particular was really powerful for me to be a part of. I can definitely see And to the other that. case, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh. it was, um, yeah, just knowing that I was able to assist. And like I said, the insects were only one Small piece of evidence that was available. So there was a lot of other physical evidence to 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 tie this person to this um, horrific crime. Uh, The other case that, because it's still technically open, I can't really disclose a lot of details about it at this time. But it was a case I got a phone call, like I normally do. Um, Somebody had confessed to uh, murdering somebody and dismembering them. And they had given the investigators the timeline of when they did it. So I got called to go in and check for evidence and and help process these remains. And we went to the house and uh, they did their search and we located the remains. And the timeline that was provided by the suspect didn't quite add up. And I was very confused at the lack of insects that were in the house and near the remains. So the remains were concealed in plastic. So I couldn't, couldn't just open them up at the scene. I had to wait until the autopsy to really be able to assess everything, but the timeline just seemed a little bit suspicious. And when we did the autopsy, I was able to collect some of the insects and the evidence gave a different timeline than what the suspect had provided. And so with that case, um, we were informed that it was a homicide and dismemberment and, uh, turned out to potentially not even be a homicide so it was a very it's a case with lots of twists and turns and it was very surprising um, basically from start to finish and so it's still open so uh, i can't give more details than that but i think those are probably my top two that i've had in the last few Mm -hmm. years
0: i can appreciate the the need for discretion for sure that honestly that sounds like a tv episode like it sounds like you got caught on, on order or something
3: yeah, it, it sometimes feels like that with some of these scenarios. It's um yeah, it's it definitely keeps me on my toes. <laughs>
0: uh so I actually have a student whose committee I'm on here at UK, uh Anna Pasternak, she is a really great grad student. Shout out to her. She actually helped to uh sort of frame up some of the outline that we used for today's show. Uh she works on ticks, but she has a really, really big passion for forensic entomology. And she was hoping uh, that I could ask you uh, for a a student that doesn't necessarily want to uh, get a full degree in this, um, that's already got a project. Are there things that are out there where uh, they could take a certificate or a credit, uh, like online courses or things like that?
3: So I, I don't know if there's any online courses that would be offered. Uh, to students outside of a program. But I do know that uh, recently in our field, the American Board of Forensic Entomology is offering a technician exam. So for people that want to learn and want to be able to collect the evidence, they don't have to be the ones to analyze it. They can send it to a forensic entomologist for analysis. But if they want to learn and understand that process, help us offer hands-on training. So a uh, usually a one to two day workshop that will have a lecture component, a lab component, and a big field component for how to properly assess and collect that evidence. And so for students that are interested in that, um, these workshops are offered basically almost anywhere that there's a, a forensic entomologist that's located. And you can sign up for one of these workshops and get that training. And then that will qualify you to take the technician exam at the end of that. And so that's something that I would suggest if your student is really interested in learning and doesn't necessarily want to complete a whole program, that that's a a pretty short time commitment to get you properly trained and get you some of that experience to be able to collect.
1: I had a question, and feel free to not answer it because it might be a little sensitive, but came into this thinking like it's mostly murders and you know, people talk about murders all the time. There's all kinds of TV shows that are about people killing people. But you mentioned like some of these cases are with elder neglect or, or child neglect And the child neglect one, like really caught me off guard. And I've just kind of been wrestling with that for the last few minutes. So can you talk about like, is there a, a mental component to this? Does some of these just leave you feeling like gutted or hollowed out at the end of the day and you got to deal with that? Like, how do you how do you mentally handle like all the all the dead people that you see or or other cases yeah. that are tough?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that I have been very mu of in my career and in my my role as an educator for students. So I try to incorporate trauma-informed education into all of my classes. So I'm talking about my experiences and, the emotional impact that this has, because this field, any area of forensics, you are dealing with horrific things. I see people's remains, you know, they have gone through horrific mutilation. They've been killed. I see people on their worst, their worst possible uh, situations. So there's a huge emotional component. And I think for a long time in forensics, this has largely been neglected, where there's an expectation of, well, you just work with that, so you have to be able to um, to deal with it. And so I think in the forensic entomology community, over the last six years, we have tried to make more of an effort to discuss some of these troubling uh, scenarios and troubling cases that we've had and have some some debriefs as a community to try to assess this and how we can make sure that our students aren't suffering. And so in my classes, I I do a lot of, um, like I said, trauma-informed education to have my students be exposed to this and understand the emotional damage that this can cause and to realize that this is a, a very real part of the job. And so um, I have I also work in the, the cold case victims advocacy space as well. And so um, I just hosted a cold case symposium a few weeks ago That I work with family members who wanted to present about their loved ones and share the human element to that, because a lot of times those cases get glamorized and people are interested only for the entertainment aspect. So I work with families that have missing and murdered loved ones, and I have them talk to my students so that they hear what the impact is on the family members. So you always, I think there's too much focus sometimes on. perpetrators. And my students can name, you know, a whole list of serial killers, but they can't name many of the victims. And so there's this disconnect where, uh, as a society, we have glamorized these these serial killers and given them so much publicity that they get all of the attention and that the students aren't seeing the impact of the lives that were lost from all of those victims. So I'm very intentional with that because that is something that I've had cases that have definitely been troubling emotionally for me. So um, cases that involve juveniles and children are really problematic and really difficult. Um, When I'm working on them, it's a, I have to be able to compartmentalize until I'm away from that space and can fully process it. And keeping in mind that I'm able to provide information for family. So I know that they're, they're undergoing a horrible an incredible amount of trauma from the loss of their loved one, but whatever information I can provide with my analysis and that timeline will hopefully help them in some capacity. So uh, it is definitely something that I discuss with my students at Great Length and try to get them that exposure and talk to people that are affected so that they understand the true impact emotionally.
0: That sounds like a really powerful mission. I I guess I have a spinoff question for that if Mike doesn't mind me tapping in Uh, as somebody that works with this kind of stuff. I mean, you were talking about the glamorization. Uh, I I guess I've been thinking about that lately with this Netflix show. That's about Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, Some people have described it to me and it just seems so bizarre, I guess that it's like the number one thing on Netflix. So as somebody that works in the field as, as a forensic expert, Is that kind of what you're talking about shows like that or, or can we, could you talk a little bit more about like what you're referring to there?
3: Yeah. So I think that show is a great example. I also haven't watched it. I don't want to um, feed into that, you know, um, there's all sorts of different forms of media. And so people want to be entertained. And so organizations like Netflix, you know, they they decide to create something like that. The issue that I have is not only is it glamorizing the serial killer who committed these crimes, but they're not necessarily involving the victims and the families that are affected. They're spinning the story in whatever way they want to and portraying these people without their consent, without their participation. And we see this in the series like, like the Jeffrey Dahmer one. We even see it with um, podcasters where we see this huge surge in true crime podcasts that have come out in the last few years. And a lot of podcasters have taken liberty with the stories that they tell and some of the ways that they're speculating and talking about evidence and potential suspects. And this can be really damaging for the case. And so there's there's some great podcasters out there, um, but then there's also some that are doing more harm than good. And so Uh, One of the people that I I work with is Sarah Turney and she's a a podcaster and advocate and she has two really fantastic podcasts and she interviews people and she works with the families to make sure that the story that's told is accurate and that they're involved because there's too much information that gets glamorized and and people are entertained by it. So they know that there's a a community for that. So I think that there's there's a, a lot of different media avenues that are being Exploitive of the victims and the families, and so it's it's nice to see people like Sarah Turney that are um, really trying to do the right thing and make sure that the right people are involved.
2: Can you share those two podcasts? I absolutely will. Yes, there. Yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah, I'll send you a link to both of those. Yeah.
0: Very compelling stuff. Something to think about as you are choosing what media to digest. Uh, and maybe what what you're you're putting in your earbuds. I I think that the final question I want to ask is, I was was talking about Anna's specific request earlier. Uh, Maybe (laughs) if there was somebody that wanted to do this as a career, um, you seem like somebody that could give really great advice about what the next steps would be. If they're a high school student or somebody getting started with their undergraduate degree, um, what are some of the avenues that they need to consider in order to end up, in a role such as yours
3: yeah so the great thing about forensic entomology is you can really come at it in a few different ways so like i said my undergraduate degree was in biology my degree in biology and i've been able to do a master's thesis and my phd work in forensic entomology and with forensically relevant insects so you can uh, pursue biology degrees you can go into entomology programs if you find one that, that fits and offers some kind of forensic entomology research uh, program. And so if you want to be able to uh, fully analyze and then testify about the evidence, uh, you really need to complete a PhD to be able to, to really delve into that. If you want to work at the crime scenes more and you want to collect and then set evidence off, Like I said, the technician exam is a great option, so completing coursework in entomology and in forensic entomology would be really helpful, and then taking those workshops to get the hands-on training from a forensic entomologist to be able to take that exam. Um, There's lots of different ways that you can come into this field, and I think that that's one of the most exciting things about this for students that are interested.
2: Does does anyone going through to it through like law enforcement route?
3: So we do have some, um, I have some investigators that are uh, go to a lot of trainings and get lots of experience and they are collecting and then they're still sending the evidence to me for analysis. Um, I don't believe right now anybody in our community has come into it from a law enforcement background. Most of us are, academics or we have a a position at a museum. And so there's one person, um, in Texas, Michelle Sanford, who is a full-time forensic entomologist. So she works at the Harris County medical examiner's office and she, um, just does casework. So, um, unfortunately there's not a lot of positions like that that are afforded to us where we can just work on that full-time. So a lot of us have kind of a mix of different responsibilities, which personally, I really enjoy that I get to interact with students and get to do research and get to consult.
2: Like what kind of qualities of a person do you think would make a good forensic entomologist or someone in forensic science?
3: Yeah. So I think um, being able to understand that that death is a something that's going to happen to everybody. And I know that that's a hard Thing to acknowledge and to cope with. So, being able to understand that process, not being squeamish about maggots. And I'm always surprised when I go to train even crime scene investigators who I think see horrible things every day when they're really uncomfortable with the idea of maggots. Um, So, somebody that's not squeamish with the insects, somebody who is very detail oriented. So, insect identification requires a lot of patience and a lot of tiny characters that you're trying to identify. So patience and and detail is really important. And then overall, just a kind of an analytical sense to be able to follow the proper methods and and scientific protocol to be able to complete these types of analysis.
2: Cool. Thank you for that. Um, You talked a lot about maggots. And in our last show, we talked about spiders and how people, you know, hate spiders. And you did talk a lot about how people dislike maggots so much. Why do you think it is like, they're so different spiders and maggots, but you're right that people do have that opinion of them. What do you think it is about maggots that people don't like? Well, I think
3: the uh, wiggly nature of maggots. So people also have that same reaction to snakes. So, I think sometimes it has to do with the fact that they don't have legs and that they're just wiggling around. I think people typically, when they encounter maggots, it's in a garbage can, it's um, with roadkill or, you know, an animal carcass. So, it's things that people typically find gross anyway. And there's usually some kind of a smell associated with maggots. So, whether they're in the garbage or you know, on a dead animal, there's a a smell and a lot of people can't handle that smell. So I think it's just maggots get a a bad reputation because of what they're associated with, but they're incredibly useful. And I think that's why when I do outreach, I try to explain to kids how maggots can be beneficial and then showing them with maggot art, you know, is a way for me to um, be able to capture their attention and make it a little bit more memorable so that they have a a positive association
2: with maggots. Yeah, that's really, that's really excellent. Okay. So the last question from me is, and I, I don't, I don't want to just assume that it would be maggots, but if you could be any forensic related arthropod that you work with, which one would you be?
3: So, yeah, I, I love blowflies. I think that they are so beautiful, um, especially The Lucilia genus, so I would have to say, oh well, it's tough. So it's either Lucilia sericata because they're a beautiful, shiny, metallic color, or Chrysomia rufifacies. That's a fun blowfly called the hairy maggot blowfly. Their maggots look really interesting. Have all of these like spiny projections, and their maggots are actually predators of other maggots and cannibals. So if they don't have enough food. They will eat other maggots. They're like little maggot vampires and they'll just drain them of their fluid. So I might have to say Chrysomya rufifacies," just because they have so many interesting life history traits.
2: Will you be able to send us an image that we could put on our show sure. notes?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think a, a picture of the maggot would be really helpful. I have some great ones and the adult. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what an appropriately spooky uh, thing to, to end on, a vampire yeah. maggot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's a great uh, send off for us. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today and teaching our listeners about forensic entomology and your program. Uh, we'll try and send all the interested parties up to Purdue so they can uh, be your student and we can, it can crowd your classroom for you there. Um, are there places online where people can find you and your work that uh, you would like to share with our listeners here today?
3: Yeah, so I have a uh, website that's for my research lab here at Purdue. Um, And I I have my consulting website. I don't know how useful that is, but maybe if there's law enforcement that's listening and they're looking for a forensic entomology expert, they can find me. uh, Hans Forensics is my consulting business. Um, I also have social media pages. Uh, Hans Forensic Entomology is the Instagram for my lab and research. And my uh, Twitter handle is just my, my first and last name. And I try to share information about events, about cold cases and raising awareness Mm -hmm. for some of those cases that really need more information. Um, So different social media platforms. We did start a a TikTok account. My students are very interested in TikTok. So um, forensic entomology is the the TikTok uh, account that we have. And we have videos of maggots and forensically relevant content on there. I'm happy to share all of those links with you if you wanted to. That's amazing.
0: I I have an extension TikTok account, uh, yeah. also run by my students, not by me. I don't believe that I would do numbers on TikTok, but forensic <laughs> entomology that seems like something that could really take off on that platform. Uh, I I think you could also do really well on Tumblr. That seems like a crowd that would really enjoy forensic. Oh,
3: entomology. okay. Yeah,
0: I've I mean. never considered. Yeah. Jody, what were you going to say?
2: I don't know. I'm just excited to check out all your <laughs> social media.
0: <laughs> <podcast>. <laughs> well, you can also find us on the internet. We have our blog, where all of our show notes and we're going to have really, really robust ones for this episode uh, with cool photos and videos to watch. You can find that at arthro-pod.blogspot.com. dash pod dot Don't forget the dash or you won't be able to find it. Uh, also you can find us on all of your different streaming platforms for podcasts, Apple podcast. Uh, you got the Spotify's, we got uh, Stitcher. We got all of them out there. Again, Arthro-Pod on all those different platforms. You can find your hosts on the internet as well. I'm on Twitter at Bugman John.
2: I'm at Jody Bugsme, UNL.
0: And we really appreciate Dr. Hans joining us here today. Uh, we hope everybody is enjoying the spooky season if you are celebrating it. And uh, we will catch you here in another couple of weeks with some exciting ArthroPod information.
1: It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time, same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.